Good evening again. So, uh, Christy, the announcements are that we have the young women's retreat tomorrow. What do they need to know or be reminded of? The time? Okay, so check in with Karis. She knows, and I think we have it posted. <clears throat> so the guys are doing their independent study then tomorrow here. Great. Who's teaching that one? Do we know? Zachary. So that's great, Zach. Thanks for doing that. Are we excusing kids tonight? Okay. <laughs> Men's breakfast tomorrow, 6.30. Some of you come a little bit earlier. That's great. And um, we are trying to post the bulletin on activities on the over, on the TV monitors up there on Sunday. So I don't know if that's helping. Obviously, I didn't memorize it. <laughs> but uh, we're going to be trying that for a season as well as our previous uh, method, which is bulletins. So tonight, we're going to be teaching from First Kings again, and then we'll pick up First Kings on Sunday. For a while, we'll alternate. Then we'll return to New Testament, Matthew, and continue. It's in part just to what appetites on what the Thursdays uh, allow us to look into and the pictures that God gives us in the Old Testament and in the principles that we learn in the New Testament as we're following the Lord's life. There was a question on when do we go out to the beach? And that's when the weather permits, although this is this would be like a sunny November, right? And we push it right up to November, but we'll wait till it gets a little bit warmer. And I think we do that kind of after Mother's Day, which is coming up. On the eighth? <laughs> Does anybody know the official date for Mother's Day? It, I, I got that right? Okay, good. Um, but sometimes the weather's just a little bit, you know, not there yet. So we want to make sure that it's there. So at any rate, First Kings turn to uh, chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 23. And this would allow us to look back on the previous couple of Sundays ago when we talked about the pillars of God. Tonight's title will be, I think, cleverly, and I think that it's going to work as looking forward, see ahead. The C is spelled capital S-E-A, see ahead. Looking forward, see ahead, and you'll see how that plays in with where we're at, almost ready to dedicate the temple. Solomon's preparing for that. But in advance of that, we've been looking at its construct. Very detailed, meticulous, mysterious. There are things that we probably can't fully appreciate in terms of dimension and majesty, architect. We have some idea. 
but we want to take a look at some of these latter features and see what they speak to us spiritually on. In the previous one, which was called the pillars of God, we were looking at verses 15 through 22, and the idea behind the pillars were representatives of attributes of God, which we all appreciate. The names of these pillars, as you would look at them, at least the first identified was Jacob and Boaz, very high pillars. In verse 15, it says he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and a line of 12 cubits measuring the circumference of each. So these were massive. They were made out of bronze. And one of the things that didn't emphasize, I did for the college the other day, is that word casting. My emphasis was on the strength and stature of these pillars. They would have been immovable. You wouldn't have bumped into it and tried to correct it from tottering. It wouldn't have tottered. But in the terms of the casting, <clears throat> it would indicate that they were formed very precisely. Some of you might relate that term to what at least in my day, if you had an art class, you always looked forward to the time when you got to mess around with the clay. And we would make bowls and we would make steins. The guys would. We would make these big giant mugs with handles. They would get fired and we would have these colors that you would put on the mug or bowl that you were making. And it was funny because the jar said this was the color. But when you put it on, you couldn't tell. I don't know what the term officially was. I'm not sure. I know that slip was the liquefied version of the clay that would be poured into the mold. But the paint was just funny because you'd paint it on and you had really to believe that what you were painting on was the color that it said it was. And therefore, you had to be very, very careful in terms of applying that paint, depending on how complicated your mold was, how ornate it would be. The reveal of that color and also the precision with which you painted would be reflected after the fire. <laughs> it would go into a kiln, it would cook for hours. And everyone was excited to come back and see the beauty of what they had made. Some of us would be very discouraged, especially we who are color deficient and couldn't necessarily form that really articulate line. But the point that I'm making here is this was one metal, so they didn't have to worry about color, except that in the sculpting of it, it needed to be precise. Getting back to the word which was a casting, it would indicate that though formed heartily with great strength on the exterior, 
there would be a void. And the picture there is that even with any of us, in strength that we feel is certainly of the Lord, as believers, there's always within us a place that God needs to have deep residency. If you would, we would call it in modern church terms as a filling, the Spirit of God that fills us to the capacity that we have been forged, casted. And the reason that that's important is because when you look at these names again is that God's desire is that he establish us. That was Jacob. And that we are able to find in our weakness his strength, which is Boaz. When we had looked at how these were presented, that was in essence the order. And the only way that that could be, as it was listed, Jacob on the right, Boaz on the left would be if in fact you were on the inside looking out. So the correlation moving from that teaching to this one is why I cleverly phrased it, that it is both looking forward, which is necessary, but why did the Lord start with what would appear to be the conclusion of the, of the journey? We seem to be almost going backwards. If our focus has been right now on component parts of entering into that area of holy worship, now we're moving from that place and we are looking basically forward once again as we completely enter in to this entire peripheral of, of ministry, of coming to seek the Lord. So I found it compelling. One of the reminders that we have to do is to say, we got there looking at Jacob and Boaz because we passed through the central entrance. And the central entrance, as you recall, would have without any opportunity to miss it, the altar of sacrifice. It was bronze too. It had horns on it. The particular dimensions are fascinating to me. It would be approximately 15 feet high with a ramp that would be opposing the entrance, almost at a full 90 degrees. Entering in, the ramp would be something that those ministering the sacrifice would ascend walking up. They didn't walk up in steps. They basically moved up a ramp. And as they moved up that ramp, it would be approximately at 15 feet of height. <clears throat> the dimensions of this altar are also incredible. If you take the cubits that have been presented elsewhere, about 48 feet square. It was massive. This was a huge barbecue that was going on. So you understand that in some degree, the senses would have been teased extraordinarily. What's going on in there? 
man, the smell of that which has been presented as at its best and is being offered up to the Lord. And there were two essential smells that would be attributed to worship of the Lord. The sacrifice, the past inspection, and the other would be only for those that could move in to the temple proper, and it would have been the incense that would be burning. Two dynamic smells. One that we associate with really our best evaluation of the things on earth that God has given to us to enjoy, and the other representing the spiritual wafting of the fragrance that the Lord says we are His to diffuse among all. And it's a divine smell. As I've pointed out before, that behind me, there is a pan that has frankincense and myrrh, and there's a smaller one that you would qualify as a tea candle. And in it are the fragrances of essential oils that are biblical. And they smell wonderful once the oil is heated, it diffuses. It's a very lovely smell. Sometimes, depending on how much of a dropper I put in, it can be beautifully overwhelming. Sometimes it's subtle, and the only way that you're able to really smell it is by drawing closer to it. You have to be an altar boy, a candle lighter. You have to want to hang out there. So I say that because these are all pictures representing, from God's perspective, attributes that both he is represented in, but also that he allows us to have the same, if you would, recognizable sensories to others. So let's take a look at this, and I want to be able to help as well see pictures here. So picking it up in verse 23, this is what it says. He made the sea. I like that just even stopping there. He did make the sea. The sea in Revelation is a picture of basically all known people's groups universally. It'll be wonderful when the Lord draws all nations to himself and there will be no war anymore. It seems like we are seasons from that, doesn't it? While at the same time, Jesus' words were clear that there will be wars and rumors of wars, casualties of wars, there will be consequence. But nevertheless, we're finding ourselves in a spiritual place of stability right now. And it's very important that what we are feeling, what we do evaluate, seemingly that's newsworthy, it cannot take a priority or a precedence over the fact that God in his sovereignty is in control of all events. And every event that he is controlling right now 
in his sovereignty is moving us towards what is known as the consummation of the ages in which time temporal fades and time eternal is taking its place and we are placed in that by our faith in the Lord now. He made the sea of cast bronze ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around ten to a cubit all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. So this is no less ornamental than the pillars that we looked at and studied. We'll be told actually what ornamental look it had, I think you can guess. But as we look around this, this is, this is no small basin of water. It's not just a wash pot. And that wasn't its intention in this place. As this altar of burnt offerings was majestic and you could not see over it, there's a picture there. And that is, in order to see beyond it, you have to identify with the person ultimately that the sacrifice represented. It represented first the individual that was surrendering the best that they had in order to transfer by acknowledgement their sin to that animal ultimately that would be received by the priests and they would be found in that confessing by presenting themselves. Something that cost them significantly, something that required of them a very specific charge that would both say, this is the best I got, and for a priest to be able to confirm it, that is the best you have. I'll take that, thank you. The idea beyond that point, though, that you could not see, though it was equally as massive, it wasn't 15 feet high, but it was huge in its circumference, and that was this extraordinary basin, and it's going to tell us by design what it looked like. We have some of the dimensions here, but what we can figure out is accurately what it held. It's pretty amazing. It would basically be an ornamental cistern, but this laver, this bronze laver called the sea, represents a cistern that was filled with water. The method, we're not sure. Somehow through aquifer transfer, they were able to keep this full. Rains that would come, probably no doubt. And then as you can suspect that there were spigots that were around this, it was in order not to dip into it, but actually to release the water. And the water was ceremonial. It was ceremonial for those who were in ministry to be washed. They would wash their hands. They could wash their face. 
They could wash their feet that would be dirty. We're not told whether or not there were puddles that then would invite the dirt to turn into clay. We're not told any of those things. And I think part of that is that God wants to see that in the symbolism, even as this would represent, if you would, from a perspective, a baptism, an exterior cleaning, which we see when we speak of baptism and when we see it on the outside, it was a very refreshing opportunity to come from a place that smells so marvelous as the sacrifices continued to be offered and now to come to a place in which there's refreshment. But the refreshment and the cleansing comes because business was first conducted at the altar of sacrifice. That's why when you see people, and it's different than just being fatigued. I don't know if any of you have been fatigued this week or the previous week or month. But one of the things that I know is that refreshment comes by focusing on the sacrifice that took, which was pleasing. And it's huge in terms of what it means to God to put ourselves in remembrance of his son, who was the perfect sacrifice. We do that practically by morning worship. And after Sunday, for me, Monday was a time to be refreshed at the laver, remembering the Lord in his sacrifice and being refreshed, if you would, or cleansed by the psalms or passages of scripture that had been read and the poetic, meaningful music that had been voiced. This is where I did business. I needed to be here on Monday because of Sunday. But wait a minute, Sunday was resurrection day. You in the grave? Maybe I was. <laughs> Maybe I was. Can we come from an extraordinary service of worshiping the Lord? And even though we have had that encounter with God, can we encounter things out there that can affect our spiritual fortitude? Or from, for instance, Monday to today, can we? Of course we can. So this is important because this cistern would serve in a huge way, as a manner and means of being cleansed, refreshed. And part of what we know is that it comes by being students of the Word. The reservoir that we see holding this huge amount of water, and it can be measured, has two types of pictures. What happens when literally we are baptized and also what happens when the word of God comes into our hearts. We have a physical baptism that we go through. We have the word of God that Paul likens in Ephesians as the washing of the water by his word. And we have the spirit likened as to water who comes in and fills us both with breath, pneuma, and fills us to what? Overflowing. Torrents of living water will 
flow from us. We don't see it, but do you know how many people do see it? But the only way is not the evidence that God presents to you, but by ultimately what he has presented to the world, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. It's really important to know that in our mind, that's always a place we need to return to, no matter what pressures we're feeling, how unclean we may have said we are. I was leaving this morning. I was actually doing some just sound button work over there, and there was a person that just came in and had a seat, and her whole reason for being here was to be refreshed, had a time to listen to what she had gone through. Dale came by and we prayed with her, just encouraging her, because what she ultimately was doing was remembering the sacrifice. And then she wanted to be washed in the word, refreshed from footsteps that she felt she had taken adrift from the Lord. Contrary. It was done just like that. Anointing her with oil and just blessing her in the name of the Lord. This is a huge, giant, ornamental basin of bronze. Bronze is a judgment metal. That's one of the things we need to see is that everything on the exterior, not in the interior, is bronze. It's to speak about a righteous judgment that God does expect for us to come to terms with. And that's why at times it's a misuse of judgment when we say, you judging me? You can't judge me. Well, if it's biased, that is true, it's not fair. And that can happen to us on Sundays, being judged. Didn't smile enough, didn't shake enough hands, didn't, <laughs> didn't communicate whatever it may be. But God, nevertheless, is saying with all of these artifacts, all of these amazing designs of artistry in bronze, it says, this is what I do. I judge, I judge righteously. I judge for purposes of changing your life. I judge your attitude so that your attitude becomes my son's attitude through the hardship that he willingly suffered in advance of you, Richard. And so as we move to verse 25, this big, huge basin, this laver, this cistern, sits upon, it says in this stood, on 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking towards the south, three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inwards. They're all looking out is essentially what they're picturing here. 
you don't see the rump of one and the face of the other. There's no confusion. They're yoked together. They're teamed up. And one of the things that is interesting about the ox and why it was used is that it is considered, one, clean as an animal, strong, but it's accommodating to its master. It can, by training, listen to commands and, if necessary, the proddings of a goad. Do you remember that Jesus would speak to one who became the Apostle Paul and would say to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You're behaving like a donkey, but I have appointed you to be an ox. I'm taking that as liberal commentary. He didn't say that. But the implication is, is that Paul, ignorant truly, of serving the Lord, even though he felt justified in how he was doing it, would be told, essentially, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. You're behaving like a donkey, but I'm going to make you an ox in the faith. That's how I see you. A burden bearer for the church, which is what he was. And he no longer turned his rump towards God, he turned his face to the Lord and showed that church how to do it, how to carry a load of refreshment, a basin that was intended to not bring an indictment against a person, but refreshment to the soul of one who wanted to change, desired to be cleaned. And so these are huge animals to hold what we will see just shortly. The sea was set upon them and all their back parts pointed inward. It was a hand breadth thick and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup. This is now returning to the basin. Like a lily blossom, it contained 2,000 baths. So Jacob and Boaz have at the top of what is called the capital, what crowns the column, what we said were Mediterranean lilies. And they're different than the trumpet lilies that we had here just this morning. They're different. They're beautiful. They're delicate. We spoke about how they would, to sight, look like a diadem a Jewish crown, and so very elegant, very beautiful. This laver seems to have the same ornamentation on it as well in how it was designed. And so therefore, I find a picture again just beautiful. When we sing crown him with many crowns, this is what we would call a notable large crown shaped or likened to a lily, a diadem, a basin full of water. The amount of water represented here as it's been given to us, containing 2,000 baths would be equal to, as some have estimated, about 11,500 gallons. So that's a large basin of water. 
ceremonially it is. You would be impressed. That's a big swimming pool. I don't know if they had to have guards on on watch to make sure no kids tried to jump up there and swim in it. But just imagine what that is. I think the calculation is about 95,000 pounds. If it's 8.3 pounds per gallon of water, and the gallons are roughly about what I mentioned, that's hugely big weight. And so this is massive in terms of what it holds and contains. I think that that equates to about 48 tons. That's just the water that's not including the bronze that it's in. So both refreshment and weightiness in terms of how stable that would be, how stable it is when we are able to say, I have been cleansed by the water of his word. It's not beyond my capacity. It overwhelms me in its capacity to do that, this cleansing that takes place. The spirit filling up the void in my life by both breath, empowerment, which that can be likened to, and overflowing, meaning the giftings that just come. In verse 27, we come to another set of articles that are used within this whole temple area. We're not in temple proper. We're in basically what would be the courtyard of the service that is conducted before the priests are even in that area. This is what the ministry team would see. This is what the people would be able to know with certainty is the conduct of righteous business. He also made 10 carts, it says, of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart, four cubits its width, and three cubits its height. And so you have a six-foot square cart with wheels, four of them. It is also made of bronze, and it's about five feet high. There would be five on each side of this courtyard. And so they would be preparatory stations for sacrifices that had been received and prior to them being burned. So you can see that basically where the altar was the place in which the sacrifice had went, had gone up before the Lord, inspection had taken place, but preparations before that had also been stationed. And so it is very much an important understanding that the Lord does prepare us ultimately before the time in which we say, I'm yours, Lord. I, I am this day standing before you and in this moment offering myself up as a living sacrifice. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, I, I am a living sacrifice, Lord, for you. This is, this is my privilege, my honor, my responsibility. And what happens, though, before that occurs is the preparatory 
you basically get sliced and diced and washed, even before you know it. God uses circumstances. He uses individuals in your life. You get drawn and quartered. <laughs> what is this about? Judged ruthlessly. <laughs> I think I went through at least 10 preparatory stations. There were 10 carts, five on each side, and I think I hit all, all of them. I hit all of them in terms of being obedient to the Lord and how, as for me, he identified and beautifully and just allowing me to write songs. But I was talking to Everest, and we were talking about evangelism and how it can work and, and how the Lord also modeled it. But I said, sometimes the easiest way to evangelize is just exercised, being exercised in what is the obvious gifting, singing and speaking. Sometimes it is coming to someone and going through the protocols of what it means to be saved, but actually sometimes it's just being yourself where you're at and exercising in the overflow of the gifting of the Spirit of God. That's actually where I got quartered and diced and sliced and beat up and offended. <laughs> Lord, you gave me these songs. I know you're, you're doing great with them. Run out of one church. <laughs> Couple of restaurants. I wasn't obnoxious either. I'd say 90% of the people thought it was cool and they were blessed. But some of those in authority or obnoxiousness, not quite so. So I was drawn and courted at least 10 different stations in my life before seeing the correlation really in what it means to be able to present myself as a living sacrifice. So again, these are massive. They have both basins of water on them and seemingly preparatory shelves as well. Six foot square is a pretty good preparation table. And basins on that would be sufficient enough to be cleaning the articles that had been cut. So God made it really flawless in terms of those that would be stationed there to do that. Maybe today we would call them grocery butchers. I'm always fascinated by those guys because I look at them doing what they do. They wear white. And you're going, why would you wear white? And it's amazing because not a lot of them have much blood on them, meaning that they're really precise. The ones that are handling those activities which are sacred to God, they're not leaving that with, if you would, blood-stained robes. They're very precise, very careful, because it was never meant to be about them. It was meant to be about that sacrifice that would be prepared and offered on the altar. This was the design of the carts. They had panels, and the panels were between frames. On the panels that were between the frames were lions, Lions, oxen, and cherubim. The lion may be emblematic of the tribe that ultimately would be exalted, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It could be a picture indeed because that was David's 
lineage, Judah. Cherubim speak of divine majesty. Oxen speak of human fortitude, obedience, and easily guided. Could be the imagery there that's being put on that as they're preparing the meat, the sacrifice that has gone through the inspection, looking forward to see ahead that for every argument they may have, how hot it may be, how cold it may be, the rain that may be hitting them, they didn't exercise this on perfect days. They didn't have perfect domestic lives. It's about the Lord, the lion. Strong, fearless. That's what I will be. King of the jungle. It is about heaven. What God is preparing me for. Cherubim. Mysterious. There are several different notated artistic thoughts about the cherubim. I have some opinions, but so do those that had opinions before me. But the oxen, I am strong, but I only am strong because I've been proven weak. He is strong. He's my burden bearer, and he's allowed me, in the position that I'm at, to not falter, but to stand where he's placed me. So I like the imagery there. By the way, it is assumed that these carts could move from where they were at because they did have wheels. But the tonnage, just let alone the water that would be in them, required teamwork. So everything that we see here, too, isn't necessarily one man doing it all. They're learning how to work together and carry each other. They had their assigned spots, but each person assigned to that spot, it was essential that they were watching over the welfare of the other person in the process. I like the picture there. Plated work, verse 30, every cart had four bronze wheels, axles of bronze, and its four feet had supports. Under the laver were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Its opening inside the crown, verse 31, at the top, was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, one and one-half cubits in outside diameter, and also on the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were the four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart. The height of a wheel was one and a half cubits, so 18 plus 9, that's a pretty good little wheel. And the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. So, you know, to fashion something like this and equate it to a chariot, which had to have a lot of strength and also perfect design so that it could be stable when it was moving over terrain that was not friendly to it, Pretty amazing engineering. And God did it. All cast bronze. 34, and there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. 
meaning it wasn't going to roll without it being necessary to roll. And that's good too. I think the picture is as well appropriate. We use that term, let's roll. Okay, where are we rolling to? What are we doing? And I think it's always very important that in the language as believers, you know, we say, well, the keys have been given to me. I got the ride. I, I know the direction that the Lord is sending me on. And so it was stable. It wasn't going to drift unless by appointment of the team that were working at those stations said, we need to change the water. We need to do a wipe down. Everything was done very meticulously. So there wouldn't be necessarily blood on the ground. How they did it is still conjecture. Because blood on the ground would create another kind of defilement. So it was sacred and holy. The blood that we know ultimately that would be spilled on the ground would come from the Lord. So they talk about the hubs, the supports, the top of the cart, verse 35, the height of one half cubic. It was perfectly round on the top of the cart. Its flanges and its panels were of the same casting. 36 on the plates of its flanges and on its panels, he engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Wherever there was a clear space on each with wreaths all around. So we have a new introduction of a design, palm trees, which were also in the temple area. Solomon had it in his home. And that resembles or that represents a very strong, obviously, Mediterranean tree. It's noted for its fruit. It's noted for symbolically um, in ceremony. It's grandeur. It's also used, much of it would have been, for the requirement of boothing with God, going on a camp out with the Lord. They would use that for shade. It could be used as weaving panels. And so the palm trees are mentioned, wreaths all around it. Again, very extraordinary. Thus he made the ten carts. All of them were of the same mold, one measure and one shape. That's a picture too. We're all one body. We have a difference in our personalities. We have our difference in physicality. But the Lord sees us by his spirit as one operating in unity because we're meant to be in the force. Not forced labor, but the labor force of accomplishing things for God. That's why it's real easy. When you look at a church and you see that they're laboring as a force of God, it's a whole different feeling than when you look at people and you're going, you're serving God and it's like forced labor. There's a difference, forced labor or a labor force. There's a refreshment. It doesn't mean you're not going to get tired. doesn't mean that you're going to have to work on understanding how other people also uniquely work with God. But those are things that get worked out of both parties if they're willing to submit to the Lord. Same old, one measure, one shape. Then in verse 38, he made 10 lavers of bronze, each laver containing 40 baths. Each laver was four cubits on 
each of the ten courts was the laver. So the carts have been made, now the laver is being made. And he put five courts on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house, and he set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. So if you were in a helicopter, you would see the layout quite well, both in the altar of sacrifice, the sea that's just ahead of it that you could not see unless you passed the sacrifice. But you can't get to the sacrifice if you're working in there unless you're stationed as well in position in front of Boaz and Jachin, Jachin and Boaz. If you're looking in, Boaz is going to be on your right, Jachin on your left. If you're looking out, Jachin on your right, Boaz on your left. You're in and you're out. You're moving forward while seemingly looking back. You're serving. You're part of remembering stations that God has created. And so it says in verse 40, Hiram made the lavers and the shovels and the bowls. Hiram finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls. But I like that. When will it ever end? Hiram said he was able to say, it's concluded. I've done the work. And that's an important part, too, to remember is that there are seasons in which we can say, I've satisfied the work of the Lord. Now, what that means to you, that's the Lord to determine. But Hiram was able to say that I finished that work. And that's an important part of our legacies. I can say, I finished my season of missions. I finished my season in starting a church. I'm in another season pastoring over a second church. And I'm now older than I was when I was in the beginning. So there's a finish line that I will hit. And I want to be able to say, I finished it. Even as the Lord was able to say from the cross, I finished it. Even as Paul said, my time is drawing near. The finish line is soon to be reckoned with. Finishing the course. The two pillars are mentioned again, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals which were on top of the pillars. We're back to looking at these pillars again. The Lord moves us into perspective changes. And I see movement in here in the same fashion where it's not necessarily always the same place, but we're in the place. And it's just, it's fascinating to me to see movement within the church. The kids that were up here, well, I remember when they were kids over there, and all of a sudden they've got microphones and they're singing a brand new song. And I'm going, how did that happen? Well, they grew up. They're still here, but they're in a different position. They're moving. They finished over there, technically, to come up here. They've matured. They're going to be a great generation. Who's leading them? The generation that is older than them, serving at the stations that God has given to them. 
So the sea is mentioned in verse 44, that's upon the 12 oxen under the sea. It indicates that there are utensils here, pots and shovels and bowls. It sounds like a nice picnic that's happening. It sounds like the things that we do here in tending and feeding people. These, of course, were the articles to be able to conduct worship. But it, nevertheless, whatever we do here can be seen as the articles that we use to conduct worship, both of benevolence and also ones of camaraderie, family stuff. Verse 46, in the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Sukkoth and it says Zaratan. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many, the weight of the bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold and the table of gold on which was the showbread. Now we're getting an insight of what was on the inside. It wasn't bronze in there, it was all gold. Everything had wood as its primary foundation, but it was all gold, which tells us what the Lord does. We move from the outside to the inside, and he says, golden, golden, progressively, golden. You never have to think of yourself as tarnished bronze or just some cast mold that's been cast off. When we enter into a relationship with the Lord progressively, we move ultimately to being golden before him. And that's the picture that's being given here. Bronze, the judgment metal, the industrial metal. Gold, the refined, precious metal, the perfect metal, never needed to be polished. The showbreads being mentioned, that's the basically communing with the Lord, the bread that was to be eaten, sacred for the priests. The lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. He takes now what David was able to tell us were his special treasures, what he had as king made certain Solomon would have available to build with, and his own inheritance, that which came from his treasury personally. A church works both corporately and what God gives, but also what we render, both as tribute and sacrificially. And that's a wonderful thing to know, is that the Lord still touches his people today to say, my last exclamation mark to my life, walking as a man, as a woman, is to leave behind a treasury for the Lord. That may be, in fact, by the generation that you are raising. It may be, in fact, by rendering to the Lord 
what you feel he has blessed you with to render. Inheritances are wonderful things to leave behind, but the most important inheritance that you can ever leave behind is how you lived your life for God. And so this concludes what is the building, and it moves into what we will see as the dedication on Sunday. We're going to pray right now and ask the Lord to bless this and our worship, and we'll look forward to closing out in song. Lord, thank you for hearing us. Thank you for this word. It has complexities to it, but I think you helped us to have a simple understanding of actually a very articulate, defined, and beautifully um, pictured construct. Everything spoke of you. All of it did. And it speaks of us and to us as well. Thank you for allowing us to come into a temple as well. You filled us with your spirit so we know that we are living temples. And you've allowed us to come into an extraordinary temple, a house of praise, of worship. We ask your blessings, Lord, in continuing to add strength in what we know we are susceptible to, and that's weakness. But thank you that we certainly can come in and we can look ahead. We can see what all of this means and how much we mean to you. So committing this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.